My wife and I, you know, have a little orchard. At least we have hopefully a future orchard. Is it an orchard before it produces fruit or does it have to produce fruit before it's an orchard? We have fruit trees. And one thing we're looking forward to is canning fruit. Uh, pears and apples, and we don't know which other things can or can't be canned. I don't know if you can can persimmons or not. Uh, may freeze those. But we had an experience where my wife had canned, I think it was apples or pears. I don't remember which it was. It was pears. And we had set them aside, and when we went to use them sometime later, we found that nearly every can had failed to seal properly, and there was discoloration and evidence of spoilage in the top of the can, which was very disheartening. I want that to illustrate an idea for you that in your life, if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you've done a lot of work. Work, you've done a lot of giving to God's church, you've done a lot of work for the church, you've handed out tracts or books, you've witnessed in your marketplace, you've helped put your kids in school. I don't know what you've done, but you've done a lot. Even if you're young now, you can do a lot. If you have knocked doors for three weeks, you have talked to hundreds of people in favor of the Three Angels' messages. You can get a lot done in your life today. But what you're doing with your life is like filling up that can with good stuff. And you're hoping eventually to enjoy the fruit of what you're doing. Your character is what seals that. And if your character doesn't seal it well, you can spoil your entire life's effort. Let me say that to you another way. If you put your whole life effort into helping people get to heaven, your children and others, and yet at the end of the day, your character retains its defects, the very ones that God tried to separate from you, Satan will be allowed to lead you into a disaster that will undermine and discredit what you have done and will cause damage equal to or even beyond the good that you have done in your life. Those spoiled pears, it would have been better if we'd eaten them before we canned them. They just weren't worth a thing. And a spoiled life is worse than useless. That's the first thought I want to share with you today. Uh, our, the title of the message is Scholars Are Needed. And in a way, it is a reaction to a poem I wrote a few days ago. I wrote a poem called The Academic Way. Did you all know I write poems? Not many people know that, and uh, you don't need to know it. It's not highly relevant to your life. But I wrote a poem called The Academic Way, and I put it where you put things like that on Facebook. And uh, I received a number of comments that indicated that what I wrote was an extreme production. Extreme not meaning extremely good or extremely bad, but meaning that it was not in any sense balanced. The main message of that little poem that I wrote, The Academic Way, was that we've made an idol out of academic studies so that if someone has the proper 
degree or is approved as a scholar, we will believe what they say without giving it critical evaluation or sensible uh, criticism. So that was the first poem, right? And did I tell you, was that received well? There were many people who thought that, it, that the way I wrote it was anti-intellectual. That is, it almost looks like that God didn't appreciate scholars. Does God appreciate scholars? You know, Daniel was a scholar, and his three friends were scholars. They were scholars, class A scholars, weren't they? Didn't they exceed other scholars at the same time and in the same place? They really knew their stuff. Paul was a scholar. I won't say Peter was a scholar, but I'll say Paul was, and Paul was able to address issues that we don't find addressed anywhere else. I appreciate the scholarship of Paul. He gives us so many insights into the Old Testament, things that otherwise would be very obscure in the Old Testament. Maybe I'll just tell you one that you can check into this afternoon when you want to do something holy during holy time. When you read Isaiah chapter 28 and 29, you find that somewhat familiar passage, who will God teach knowledge? Who will he make to understand doctrine? Those who are weaned, those who are no longer dependent on their mothers, those who compare scripture with scripture here a little, there a little. You've read this passage there in Isaiah. Just after that passage, it says something about God wanting to teach his people, but they won't listen. So with stammering lips, he's going to instruct them. And you wonder, what does it mean? But Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He quotes that passage from Isaiah and shows that that was a prophecy of how God would use the gift of tongues to give evidence to the unbelieving Jews of the legitimacy of the message of the gospel. And was that fulfilled? Why in Acts chapter 2, during the Passover, there it happened that God used the gift of tongues to give evidence to people who had been resisting. Now, that's not my message today. I'm not speaking at all about the gift of tongues or 1 Corinthians 14, but I'm trying to tell you that scholars are needed and that it's because Paul was a careful scholar of Scripture that we understand many things in the Old Testament that at least I would have a hard time deciphering if he had not been instrumental in helping with that. I'm going to read you a poem, a secondary poem I wrote this week. And if you don't like poetry, you can just wait till I'm done and then we'll have a Bible study. But this poem is called Scholars Are Needed. Scholars are needed, this I confess, even if some have made a big mess. Studious persons with years in the books have beauteous wisdom, whatever their looks. I want an expert, experienced too, to operate lasers on one eye or two, to play for our wedding or pilot the jet, to teach chemistry, those students forget. What I'm saying to balance my thoughts, scholars are precious, I love them a lot. I aim to become one, to study and teach, to drink at the fountain of knowledge, then preach. But scholars who study the sayings of men make the waters muddy by using their pen, by mixing traditions, wishes, and guesses, 
much confirmed rumors. That's how they make messes. With the word of God, pure and true, that's not what a scholar of truth ought to do. So yes, we need scholars like Andrews and Bates, James White and others who studied first rate. Young men, we need you to study with power, to teach not with wisdom of men at this hour, but teach with the spirit enforcing the word. Such scholars are useful wherever they're heard. Theologians aren't needed to concoct more stuff. Of sayings of men, we've had quite enough. But if they would study as children the word, they'd be the scholars we need. We need the scholars they'd be. Scholars are needed, you see. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. That was our scripture reading. Jeremiah chapter 2. And we're starting in verse 11. Jeremiah 2 is one of the most interesting chapters you can find in that book. It asks some rhetorical questions that are worth thinking about even today. One of the questions it asks, does a bride forget to get dressed special for her wedding? Well, what's the answer to that question? Can you imagine a bride forgetting to put on her special dress? A bride certainly would never forget to put on her dress. I mean, you might forget to get dressed up for something, but a bride will not forget to, forget to get dressed up for her wedding, right? And in Jeremiah 2, God asked that question to illustrate something. We'll get to that a little bit later in our message. Are you in verse 11? Jeremiah 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. I thought about that this morning. Why is it that nations don't change their false gods? Why are the Philistines so loyal to their false god? Why are the Ephesians so loyal to Artemis? That is the lady that we know as Diana. Why are nations so loyal to false gods? I think I've seen one of the reasons when I was in India. Because the place I was in India was going through a terrible drought. And in their terrible drought, they became desperate. When you're desperate, you need help. And so I saw an entire village that had gone together... This was a village of poor people, but these poor people were sacrifice, sacrificing their goats and their chickens to pray to the gods to bring rain. They were sacrificing their wealth to get help in their emergency. You know, they were dependent on their gods. And if you're dependent on your God, are you going to change your God? You're, I don't know how to say this more clearly, but... If you're holding on to a rope for dear life, you're not going to exchange the rope for thin air. So nations do not change their gods. But this question says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Yes, be very desolate, says the Lord. That is, angels in heaven weep 
be so sad that God's people have done something comparable to nations with false gods changing their gods, except for that God's people were depending on a true God. Verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Oh, think for just a minute about that word picture. If you had a large piece of granite here, if, if our church was built on a granite mountain, you could perhaps dig out a baptistry out of that granite. Do you think that would be easy? Wouldn't that be incredibly difficult? I mean, if you have the right kind of explosives, maybe it would not be so difficult. But Jeremiah 2 was not written in the age of dynamite. So I'm trying to help you understand that digging in granite would be very difficult. But do you know, if you go digging something to hold water in that large rock, you are gambling with a lot of your effort. Because as you get down far enough and deep enough, when you're just about finished with your cistern, there is always the possibility in going down another step that you're going to encounter a fissure in the rock, a crack. And you know what that's going to do to your cistern? Your hard work is going to produce a spring somewhere further down the mountain. Does that make sense to any of you what I just said? It is difficult to dig a cistern And there is hardly an illustration that Jeremiah could find or that God found for Jeremiah that shows more vanity than going through all the work of digging a cistern only to have it leak. Do you see that there in verse 13? They have dug themselves out cisterns that can hold no what? They can't hold water. Now, before they began digging a cistern, you know they never needed a cistern before? I'm speaking in the metaphor. Why didn't they need a cistern? You know, they had a fountain. And if you have a fountain, you don't need a cistern. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? If you have a fresh source supply that's continually providing water, that's better in every sense than a cistern. Maybe you want both just in case that water might at some point give up. But what God has said is that he is like a cistern. He is a continual source of what we need. And it doesn't make any sense to angels in heaven why we would turn away from him and go to something that has, is so much work but so little productive. Metaphors are interesting, but they don't explain themselves. And so I want to explain this one a bit as I understand it. God is a jealous God. He does not accept us depending on other sources of support or supply. God does not accept me having some other dependence for my wisdom or my safety or my strength. Not even for for my acceptance with him. 
I'm thinking right now of Zechariah 3. You can turn there. I'm not sure I'm going to have you read anything, but you know what's there in verses 1 through 4, where Joshua is before the Lord and he is dressed. But what is he wearing? You know, his rags are dirty. And God tells the angel to strip him of his filthy rags. That's the way the Bible illustrates that particular broken cistern called our righteousness. It just can't hold any water. I can't be good enough to be accepted. There just is no way I can dig and dig and dig, and I am not going to be accepted with him. Do you think there might be people who've been digging at that cistern for their entire life? Why, there are people who all their life, I'm thinking right now of people who practice Islam, people who all their life are digging in this, in this rock, this hard rock, but their cistern won't hold any water. What I mean is they can't be good enough. All of their righteousness is filthy rags. What about money? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter, did I say Jeremiah? That's not what I meant at all. Job chapter 31. They both start with J, but that's the end of their similarities. If you did turn to Jeremiah 31, that's where you find the new covenant. But we're going to Job 31. Job 31 in verse 24. When people have you turn to the book of Job, you probably should check before you put a lot of stock in what you read to see who is speaking in the particular chapter that you're reading. Not every verse in the book of Job is written by someone that's commended in the book of Job. And God even asked this question in the book of Job, who is this who has darkened counsel with words without knowledge? Have you read that when God asked that question? But here in Job chapter 31, we are reading things written by Job. Job 31 in verse uh, 24 says, If I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great, and because my hand had gotten much, If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon when it was walking in brightness. Well, I don't think we're probably, in verse 26, as a people in America, we're probably not worshiping the sun and the moon. But look down to verse 28, where the money part has some application to us. This also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge. For I should have denied the God that is above. Or let me say that another way. Job compares sun worship to money worship. Do you see that in these verses? He doesn't say they're the same thing, but they have something in common. They both are a denial of God that is above, and the judge condemns both. Depending on wealth is like digging out a cistern in difficult rock. I mean, even though you work hard at it all your life, it can't even deliver you from problems on this planet. 
It is a cistern that can hold no water. When I was thinking of what do men depend on, I thought many men in the world depend on their righteousness. Many depend on their wealth. I thought right here in America, many religious people depend on doctors. And I don't even mean precisely what you might think I mean. I mean, there is a sense where you depend on doctors the way Asa did. You remember King Asa? How he became so sick that his disease was very great. You know what he did when he was very sick? The Bible says that he didn't go to the Lord, but he depended on doctors instead. That's one way that people deny the Lord, and we'll come back to that. But I'm speaking of something so different. We think of doctors as being smart. Don't we think of doctors as being smart? Now, there are several male visitors here and female visitors here that are adults, and it's entirely possible one or more of you is a doctor. So I'm going to be very careful what I say. Doctors probably are quite intelligent. But the fact that they have a higher IQ doesn't make them one bit more reliable when it comes to knowing what is true. When I think about the source of errors and heresies that have gained prominence in this North American division, a lot of them have their origins with medical personnel, physicians. Not because physicians are more erroneous than others, but because they're more trusted. In other words, here is the man who's thought to be foolish that says something er erroneous, and no one believes him. Here's the doctor who says something erroneous, and many people believe him. So which one ends up becoming well-known? Well, I'm not saying doctors are more foolish. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? It's not that they make more mistakes. But the fact of the matter is they're the cause of more problems because, not because they're doctors, but because we use them like cisterns that can hold no water. We depend on them for our wisdom. That story of Asa was Second Chronicles 16.12 where the Bible says, Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And here I think I should add that when I depend on God to be my deliverance, God delivers me not by hocus pocus, but by using his resources. Sometimes he even gives me money to help me with my problems. Have any of you ever experienced that, that God used money to help you with your problems? Sometimes he uses money to help me with my problems. Sometimes he uses doctors to help me with my problems. Sometimes he might even use other wise people to help me with my problems. He never uses my goodness to help me with my problems because my goodness is filthy rags and just doesn't help. But God can use these other items. What he doesn't want is that we would depend on them. Some people... Many people depend on their military for the solution to their problems. I'll read to you from Isaiah 31, verse 1. And if you're instantaneous in finding verses, you can even read it with me. 
It says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Does God sometimes use armies to cause deliverance? I think of Gideon. Certainly God sometimes uses soldiers to deliver. But can you even see in the story of Gideon that when God uses soldiers to deliver, he works to make sure that you realize that the source of power is him and not the soldiers? That is, that God is jealous. What I'm trying to say is that scholars are needed. We need studious people like we need doctors and like we need wealthy people and like nations need soldiers. We need scholars, but we cannot depend on them. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Of all the writers in the New Testament, I think it's fairly safe to say that Paul was the most thoroughly formally educated. The runner-up would probably be Luke, but Paul probably was it. And it's interesting to me that Paul is the one who makes the, the most statements that could be interpreted as anti-intellectual. Are you in 1 Corinthians 1? Look at verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It's not that God is trying to make a mockery of the human mind. God created the human mind and he made it well. But he does work to undermine the credibility of persons who get put on that pedestal. He tries to undermine the credibility of the scribes and the Pharisees, of the lawyers. Because once you put men on that pedestal and begin to accept what they say uncritically, you have a cistern that can hold no water. Do you remember what God said in Jeremiah 2? That my people have done two evils. The first thing they have done is they have rejected me. And there's a connection. The reason that we go digging those cisterns is because we can't find the fountain anymore. I mean, when you don't have the fountain, you need to find something else to rely on. When you don't know what it's like to be buoyed up by God's resources, by his wisdom, by his righteousness, by his deliverance, when you don't know what it's like to be supported by him, you feel like you're hanging and you're in danger of falling and you begin looking for something else to hold you up. And if you begin looking, it's going to be a lot of work, but you have an idea that if you dig hard enough, maybe you can have some goodness or some scholar or some army or some money or some doctor that can hold you up. And it just can't be. That's not just, it's not just a, a neutral action it's the second evil. It's not right to go after some other dependence other than God. You're in 1 Corinthians 1. Look at chapter 2. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which men's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There is a wisdom that the scholars don't have access to unless they are converted persons. Do you see that in these two verses? That even if they spend their whole life studying, if they're not spiritual persons, they just don't have access? Do we need scholars? We do. But I hope you can see that there's only one kind of scholar that really does any help or provides any help when it comes to spiritual things, and that is a spiritual scholar. And do we know something about the methods of spiritual scholars from these two verses? Oh, we do. They compare spiritual things to what? You know, the spiritual scholar doesn't compare spiritual things to guesses or to wishes or to much confirmed rumors. He's not comparing spiritual things to culture and history. I don't mean he's ignorant of culture and history, but I mean when it comes to interpretation of its spiritual things, he's letting the Bible interpret itself. That's the kind of scholar that we need. That's the kind of scholar that we can be. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. We want to look more at that fascinating chapter. Briefly observe a few other thoughts in it. Look at verse 32. Jeremiah 2 and verse 32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? We've asked that question. We say the answer is certainly no. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. What is God saying by this powerful metaphor of a bride forgetting to put on her dress? He's saying that when I wake up in the morning and I neglect to connect with the fountain, when I neglect to drink at that fountain of knowledge, to connect with that source of power, what I'm doing is as unthinkable in the eyes of our angels as it is for us to consider a bride forgetting her adornment. Let me say that again. When you see that bride walking up front on her wedding day in blue jeans, and it's not a cowboy wedding, when you, when you see something going on that is just strikes you, as I can't believe she forgot to put on her special clothes, however that strikes you is inappropriate and odd and, and just, it doesn't figure. That's how my angel sees it when I in the morning don't connect because I am going out on display and people are going to see and people are going to observe 
And if I'm not connected, if I'm not adorned with the graces of the gospel, it just doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't make any sense to us. But what does God say about his people? They have forgotten me days without number. Look at the end of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 37. It's speaking about about the people of Jerusalem depending on Egypt for their support instead of depending on the word of Jeremiah on the power of God. In Jeremiah, you have this contrast played out. The big enemy coming is Babylon. It's kind of like our day. Isn't our big enemy coming Babylon? The big enemy coming is Babylon. But the way to deal with Babylon, there are two different theories in the book of Jeremiah. One is to trust the prophet, and the other one is to get help from another superpower, and that is Egypt. And uh, if you've read the book of Jeremiah a few times, you might remember that many people in the book of Jeremiah go for option two. They actually go to, to Egypt for help. Well, here, before that even happens, God says what's going to happen. Look at verse 37. Yes, you will go forth from him and your hands upon your head. For the Lord has rejected your confidences and you shall not prosper in them. It makes me wonder if God had not intervened, if Egypt might have been able to deliver God's people from Babylon? I don't know the answer to that question, but I see evidence in the book of Daniel that God helped Nebuchadnezzar, that God gave him power and success. And it looks to me here in Jeremiah 2 like God worked supernaturally to undermine the faith of his people in some other confidence. I can see God working even now in America maybe even supernaturally, to undermine the credibility of our other sources, to show us that those cisterns have holes in them, to show us that they can hold no water. He's not trying to lead us to die of thirst when he drains our cistern. What is he trying to do? To lead us back to the fountain, to lead us to connect to him daily, to lead us to depend on that source of wisdom, to depend on his deliverance, to depend on his resources. He may use the doctors and money and armies for our benefit, but he wants us to depend on him alone. And when we do, he can deliver us. He can make a difference, and he will. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.